Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, highlights on the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against Bolivian, the armed uprising of the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, or the EZLN, in 1994 against the colonial state of Mexico and global capitalism. We'll hear what happened at the anniversary that took place between December 29th and January 2nd of 2024, the major announcements by the EZLN that reflect major changes in the course of self-determination, as well as hear updates on the globalized and militarized cartels and the major mega-projects that threaten the traditional territories of the Mayan peoples in Chiapas, Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley Mm -hmm. And you know when come a candy blows To the Bahu drum Between December 29th of 2023 and January 2nd of 2024, the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against oblivion took place in the Zapatista village of Dolores Hildago. The event was organized by thousands of Zapatista support bases, indigenous men, women, boys, girls, elderly and older men and women who celebrated three decades of resistance to the capitalist system with sports, arts, music, food, popular dance, and other forms of living cultural expressions. The Mayan people's traditional homelands were recovered after the armed uprising of the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, or the EZLN, in 1994, and are concrete evidence of how the Zapatismo in Chiapas has improved the living conditions of the communities based on organization, autonomy, and self-determination. Today on American Indian Airways, we'll hear what happened at the anniversary gathering, the importance and meanings behind the new announcements by the EZLN for future indigenous generations, and we'll get an update on the cartels and the mega-colonial projects in Mexico that threaten life and the Mayan peoples throughout the region of Chiapas, Mexico. Our guest today on American Indian Airwaves is Richard Stoller Schulk, a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University and community activist involved with the School of Chiapas, which is an organization of grassroots activists and communities working to support the autonomous indigenous Zapatista communities of Chiapas, Mexico. Today on American Indian Airwaves, I'm joined by executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez, and we begin today's interview with what happened 
at the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against a Bolivian. Uh, yes, uh, the January 1st, 2024 was the 30th anniversary of the Zapatista Rebellion that went public on January 1st of 1994. It's worth noting that that 30th anniversary since the rebellion is also the 40th anniversary of the formation of the Zapatista movement um, in November of 1983. So they had been organizing clandestinely for 10 years before the, the uprising. So this is a kind of celebration of decades of uh, organized resistance on the part of the uh, the Zapatista movement and, and others who have been inspired by that movement. So the celebration um, that was um, announced kind of at the last minute, because circumstances are pretty dicey in Chiapas these days, uh, was a gathering at one of the old landowner estates that had been recovered by the Zapatistas from the wealthy landowner, uh, who was a, an oppressive uh, sort of uh, feudal patriarchal force in that community of Dolores Hidalgo. And so on that recovered space, uh, over a thousand people gathered for this um, celebration, uh, coming on relatively short notice from all over. Um, and one of the themes of the Zapatista celebration of that anniversary was the idea that the Zapatista movement was proposing to be what they called a good seed of resistance, uh, as opposed to the bad seeds or the uprooting of seeds um, that the uh, forces of the state and the global market have been inflicting on them for some time. Um, so the Zapatista movement really, in that sense, uh, is a seed project. It's a, uh, an inspiration, hopefully, for others far beyond Chiapas or the particular communities that initially rose up. And I think that after 30 years, we can point to many other movements that directly or indirectly have taken inspiration uh, among the indigenous movements of Latin America. The Mapuche people of Chile and Argentina, for example, have been organizing in autonomous form, resisting those who are um, trying to uh, clear-cut and steal their forest resources and destroy their identity and community. Um, the uh, movement of a number of indigenous peoples in the Cauca region of Colombia um, and beyond just indigenous people, feminist movements, unemployed youth, lots of other groupings of people that have taken inspiration from the idea of autonomy, of rejecting illegitimate authority and making your own government, lifestyle, community as you see fit. And thinking about the overview of the of this 30 or 40 year period, we'll go with the 30 since the uprising. Insurgent subcommander Moises, who is the spokesperson these days for the the movement, reviewed the progress and said that there we can divide that 30 year period into kind of three 10 year periods in looking back at this history, uh, from the 1994 uprising until 2003, when the uh, good governance councils or juntas de buen gobierno uh, were beginning to be created. That period was what he called uh, learning uh, self-governance. Um, so it was a, a period of creating these new structures and trying them out and learning how to, uh, ordinary people in the community could take turns rotating through the structures of self-governance, unpaid, of course, because the Zapatista model uh, is that uh, everyone is in it uh, together, and government is supposed to be serving the people, not uh, ruling over the people. And then a second period from uh, 2003 to 2013, that 10-year period that Moises referred to as um, kind of recognizing the importance of generational change, 
at that time, you have a whole new generation coming up in these autonomous communities that uh, were, you know, kind of born into a new uh, reality. And at the end of that period, I think we can see some of the fruits of that in the Escuelita, the Zapatista little school, where they uh, convened sessions throughout Zapatista territory and invited outsiders to come live with the Zapatista family, learn from the family, accompany them in the fields and in their daily activities. And it was the young people who really took the initiative, the new generation, uh, the hope for the the future, who were not born into those kind of semi-slave conditions of the uh, the estates uh, of the big landowners in, uh, in Chiapas from before the uprising. And then finally, the last 10 years of 2013 through the present time, the end of 2023, Moises described as a period of self-evaluation and self-criticism to see what needs to be changed. And there were some major new announcements made at the end of, of last year about changes in uh, the Zapatista movement. You mentioned um, 1983, and I think that's uh, important it, to put that into hi- historical context or generational context, because I think of you know, the kind of indigenous activism going on throughout uh, Latin America, whether it be, you know, Evo Morales and the Moss movement, if you will, or Rigoberta Menchu and and the work of indigenous people in Guatemala, or even um, the work of the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador uh, with Luis Macas, uh, amongst others. And I was wondering, there's so much focus, as you were saying, right, on uh, 1994 as kind of this beginning point. But I was wondering maybe kind of set the uh, the colonial stage, if you will, and talk about those those first 10, ten years that are often left out of uh, the story about the rise of the Zapatistas and the ZLN? Sure. I think that uh, we can go back even before the 10 years before the 1994 <laughs> uprising, because, of course, when the Zapatistas first rose up and issued their first declaration of the Lacandon jungle, they reminded the world um, that they had been struggling for 500 years yes. um, and that they had made this very clear and that nobody was listening, but they had always been there and always been um, in resistance. So there is a long history. The Zapatistas were not the first uh, indigenous people to rebel or to proclaim autonomy, and they're not the only ones and they're not the last ones. Um, they are one uh, an example that has inspired uh, many others. So it sort of shed light uh, looking backward and looking forward from that moment of the public uh, uprising. So sure, throughout the 1980s, uh, when the EZLN was first formed, that was the decade of neoliberal transformation of the Mexican economy, the opening up to global uh, capitalist forces uh, that had a devastating impact. And really the final straw that sparked the 1994 rebellion uh, was uh, the essentially the privatization of what had been collectively held a Hilo peasant land and indigenous community land by an agrarian counter-reform in preparation for NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and the global capitalist model or neoliberal model. Um, So we can look at those different moments in history, and they're all important. It's not just 1994, as you point out, that is the moment that's important. It's so important to talk about the history and and certainly, um, you know, and talking about media, if you will, or coverage about the EZLN, you know, the emphasis, you know, their starting point is always seems to be 1994. 
and the kind of the summary response to before that is in response to the past. And so I think it's important that we understand um, kind of the rise and early seeds of germination, if you will, of the EZLN. And and when it comes to the gathering that took place um, at the Zapatista village of Dolores uh, Hidalgo, I think um, a lot of uh, foreign media and press um you know, that did come to report on what happened, brought with them their own, shall we say, settler colonial gaze or ethno and Eurocentric biases. And so oftentimes, you know, we hear the EZLN and people talk about armed resistance and militarization, and that gets associated with revolution and, and maleness. But talk about what the uh, the gathering was like because it's different than what a lot of of uh, the press uh, reported on for those who did. Sure, I wasn't there personally. I've read about it and um, been in communication with people who were there, and um, it was a uh, celebration, a kind of self-confident recognition of the movement, but also a self-critical recognition right. that this is a work in progress and that autonomy is constructed uh, as you go along. The, uh, the road is made by walking on it, as a, an old um, saying goes in, in Latin America. The uh, um, spokesperson, Subcommander Moises, uh, said when he was kind of talking about that moment in the gathering, he said, we are alone, like 30 years ago. Yeah. He didn't mean that uh, we don't want to have anything to do with anyone else. That you're welcome to come and be part of this celebration and take inspiration in your own walks of life, but don't come to analyze us and tell us who we are and what we need to do. Is essentially what he was saying. So yeah, there were, you know, outside media and outside, you know, enthusiasts and and others who who came and have their own particular framing. Um, but the Zapatistas uh, believe that uh, autonomy is all about uh, people making their own reality and defining themselves, their own identities, and and who they want to be. So uh, it was, you know, an interesting kind of moment. And again, it was a, um, a shift because the Zapatistas have reorganized and they've said, look, this is why we're reorganizing. Conditions are different now. So I don't know, maybe we can talk some about that reorganization. There was a, an issuance of communiques, if you will, that began, I believe, in around October. And it was number 20, where the there's a proposal, right, being laid out for for part of or for this reorganization. So I was wondering if you could talk us uh, through that and, and what that means and, and what these communications signify. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with retired professor Richard Stuller Shulk involved with the School of Chiapas. He's speaking on the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against a Bolivian, which took place earlier this year in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. Sure. These latest communiques of the last few months, um, uh, particularly in the 20, the series of 20 communiques, number nine and number 20 are particularly significant, and they point to two different um, kind of internal rethinkings and restructurings, uh, one in the structures of self-governance and the other in kind of production and land use in the territories of the Zapatista movement. Uh, so the Zapatistas explained why they felt the need at this point based on their um, internal evaluations and, and discussions to do this. They said that this was in response to what they called the storm, uh, 
Mm. And by the storm, it's really a kind of confluence, a perfect storm in a way, of several different uh, forces. The mega projects of global capitalism that are destroying life and community and the environment was, that's one aspect of the storm that has changed reality for indigenous people in many places. Um, another is the state condoned violence, uh, not only, not always directly by state actors, sometimes by paramilitaries and transnational criminal organizations, et cetera, but it's still violence that is destroying the social fabric um, of uh, indigenous communities. And uh, the third aspect of the storm that they cited was the capitalist logic of short-term profit over humanity, over long-term sustainable community life. Um, and so faced with all of that, they felt the need to do some reorganization. So on the kind of self-government side of the reorganization, which they said was done in order to increase the defense and security of towns and Mother Earth. So the, uh, most people who have followed the Zapatistas are familiar with the um, structure of communities at the base level, uh, the Zapatista autonomous municipalities that group together collections of, of villages or communities, and then the, um, the larger structures of the good governance councils, juntas de buen gobierno, um, headquartered in these spots called caracoles. Uh, so um, up until this latest restructuring, there were 12 of these uh, good governance councils uh, gathering together autonomous municipalities. So the good governance councils and the uh, autonomous municipal governments were dissolved with this reorganization. Uh, and in their place, the primary unit is, uh, is it, essentially it's a decentralization. The primary unit is the community. Uh, and now the communities um, are... Uh, have their own local autonomous governments, every single community. So instead of, uh, you know, maybe um, larger numbers of autonomous municipalities, they're now uh, even larger numbers of autonomous communities, thousands of them. Um, and then those communities can self-organize into collectives of Zapatista autonomous government, uh, groupings of communities, which would amount to hundreds of these self-formed groups of local governments, replacing the 12 good governance councils. And then, as needed, those uh, autonomous government collectives can call assemblies in an entire zone or region um, to address specific problems or issues that need to be resolved. Um, so it's a, a real kind of trusting of the grassroots um, and a realization that over 30 years there's been a tremendous self-awareness and capacity that has grown up at the grassroots level, that um, villagers, community members have cycled in and out on a rotating basis through these structures of autonomous government and learned through trial and error um, how to be self-governing, and now they can do it themselves at the local level. Uh, so that's one aspect of the reorganization. And then the other having to do with production and, and land use. Um, the, um, uh, the latest restructuring will keep two of the modalities of production and land use, individual or family uh, uh, level um, units of agricultural production, um, farms at the you know, local level, collectives in which in a given uh, community, the families in that community might decide that some of the land will be managed in common fashion and they'll be rotating labor and assemblies to decide how to share the product and so forth. Uh, but then the new innovation is that all of the rest of the land that was recovered uh, from 
the usurpation of uh, landowners uh, since the colonial times, so those recovered areas of, of land, will be uh, designated as land for common use. Mm -hmm. And that land in the commons can be managed by whatever agreement the people who live in that region are zoned, whether they're Zapatistas or not, whatever whether they belong to a political party or not, however they choose to um, uh, manage and, and regulate among themselves with several provisos that there will be no property, no one will own any of that land, no titles will be issued, no taxes, uh, no uh, seeking of papers from the government to ask for permission to use the land or to designate whose land is whose. No paramilitaries, uh, no drug cultivation, no corporations will be allowed in that common land. The product will belong to whoever works the land. And any facilities that are built on that land during the time that it's used in this communal fashion will be left for the next people who come and occupy and use the land. They're not going to be owned um, by uh, anyone. So it's a, a very interesting step toward kind of communality on the part of the Zapatistas. Uh, when Moises was explaining this particular step in the, the restructuring, he pointed out that governments ever since the colonial time have been issuing pieces of paper, signing land rights to, you know, first the, uh, the Spanish conquistadores and then to their successors and then to the wealthy and the powerful, etc. And it's always been to displace indigenous people and to ensure the private appropriation and accumulation of wealth. So to um, quote Moises on this uh, issuing of papers, he said, the paper is worthless to the powerful. It's a hoax. It's so that you can trust and be calm until the system discovers that beneath your poverty there is oil, gold, uranium, silver, or that there's a spring of pure water. And now it turns out that water is already a commodity that is bought and sold, a commodity like your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents were, a commodity like you are and your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will be, and so on for generations. So that's the capitalist logic uh, or the colonial logic uh, before that that uh, the Zapatistas have um, definitively rejected and are replacing with this more communal notion. Well, I was thinking of, too, and in, in, in listening to your response, it's also um, a disavowal and a refusal of, um, you know, going back to the, the beginning stages of the colonial era, if you will, of the doctrine of discovery or the doctrine of dominion. Yes. So um, you were asking about the doctrine of discovery and this concept, uh, the historical context of, of land use. And um, yeah, the, the doctrine of discovery was based on this concept from colonial times of terra nullius, that it's an empty land. Um, and nobody was there because it was just indigenous people who didn't count. And so what the Zapatistas are saying is, okay, we have a different interpretation. The land belongs to no one because it belongs to everyone. Um, so it's not that the land is empty, it's not that it is available to be taken and privately appropriated, it is that it has always been everyone's land and will sort of be restored to that uh, condition of everyone's land. And I was thinking too of uh, you know, just Mayan or indigenous peoples understanding that you know, nobody owns Mother Earth. And so, right, right with this, um, the new initiative, right, that nobody owns the land there in Chiapas is in alignment with Mayan uh, traditions or uh, philosophies or, or cultural um, worldviews, if you will. 
Yes, absolutely. I was wondering, um, in the proposal for these new transitions and this period of reflection of what's transpired or what's happened over the last three or four decades, you know, um, where does um, the San Andreas Accords fit in relationship to the settler colonial state of Mexico? So where does that fit in the in uh, the context of this anniversary and the announcements of these new changes in these communiques? Well, the San Andres Accords, as listeners may remember, uh, were um, signed in 1998, <coughs> two years after the Zapatista uprising. They were uh, the result of some torturous negotiations between the Zapatistas and the Mexican government that were designed to step-by-step sort of come to agreement about autonomy, recognizing autonomy of indigenous communities. Fortunately, the Zapatistas had the foresight uh, to proceed and build their own autonomy while this negotiation was going on and not wait for the government to define what their autonomy could be. Mm. Because, of course, as we know, governments lie and treaties are broken, and uh, the government wound up imposing a very, very limited view of, uh, you know, we, the benevolent government, will give you a few crumbs to indigenous communities. And the Zapatistas rejected that, as did other indigenous people across Mexico, the, the, the official Mexican government, which the Zapatistas call the bad government, continued to push through in a top-down fashion uh, their interpretation and pass an indigenous uh, law. But meanwhile, the Zapatistas had built a de facto uh, autonomy. So it's just a, like what the colonialists did in the, the era of the so-called age of discovery uh, when they came along and said, we are imposing our rules, posting our parameters, um, this is the way it's, it's going to be, when, of course, people already had their own concept of self-organization. Uh, um, so uh, the Zapatistas were way ahead of the game in building autonomy. And really, even before the 1994 uprising, in the decades before that, many indigenous people from the highlands of Chiapas had been sort of squeezed off of their tiny plots of land if they had any at all, uh, by growing concentration of economic and political power, local power brokers who were used by the ruling political party, the PRI at the time. Uh, so as indigenous people were squeezed out, they began to migrate into the eastern canyons of the Lacandon jungle in Chiapas, which um, the government considered a kind of empty land. Um, there were some indigenous groups already there, but uh, it was sparsely populated. And Given the fact that the government, the state's control scarcely reached in those regions, the, uh, the communities of migrants, this was before the Zapatistas even formed, had to create their own uh, structures of local government. So they were way ahead of the government on defining and implementing autonomy before sitting down to negotiate and being rebuffed and uh, the government sort of giving them the bait and switch with the San Andres Accords. Um, The the Zapatistas are simply continuing, not waiting for permission to be free and autonomous, but uh, simply doing it. You know, in in talking about, um, you know, the rise or the seeds of germination of the EZLN and the 30th anniversary and this period of reflection and and in response um, to the lessons learned, if you will, in implementing um, these new changes um, and being done so for future generations, if I recall, that was part of 
right, the communiques, is that uh, the decisions uh, um, and the actions being made or going to be made are for the cultural survivance, if you will, or survival and future of uh, the forthcoming generations. And you mentioned the youth um, in one of your earlier responses and how the youth really uh, uh, were that first generation to be raised in this autonomous region of Chiapas. But what about the role of women? Because women have played, uh, and this kind of goes back to my comment earlier about, you know, this idea of revolution and resistance oftentimes gets genderized and being male dominated. But in truth, Mm -hmm. Mayan women play, have, and continue to play a very profound role. And I was wondering um, if you could talk about the role of women in the course of the seeds of germination to the EZLN to the quote-unquote armed uprising in 1994 to where we are today. Sure. Uh, even during the period of clandestine organizing, the Zapatistas were definitely involving women in the movement. One of the prominent women leaders uh, was uh, Comandante Ramona, mm-hmm from the uh, Tzotzil Highland region of, of Chiapas. She was a much-loved figure in the movement. Um, she died of cancer uh, early in the, um, the, the Zapatista period of uh, self-governance. And uh, she was an inspiration. Another leading figure uh, was Comandante Esther, uh, who was the one who traveled to Mexico City with the Zapatista caravan, the caravan of the color of the earth, the march in 2001, um, a kind of in-your-face confrontation against the government's attempt to divert the indigenous law and, and undermine the San Andres Accords. And, and she was the one who spoke to the Mexican Congress. She addressed the Mexican Congress and, you know, told it like it was, speaking truth to power. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with retired professor Richard Stuller Shulk, involved with the School of Chiapas. He's speaking on the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against a Bolivian, which took place earlier this year in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. But beyond those positions of more prominent leadership at the grassroots level, the Zapatistas have open space for what is always going to be a long transition uh, for excluded groups to um, uh, come into their own, uh, women and youth in particular who haven't had uh, in the past as many opportunities uh, for um, uh, political uh, leadership. So, for instance, by creating uh, autonomous structures of health, education, etc., there are these positions of health promoter, education promoter, agroecology promoter, uh, the uh, honor and justice commissions that administer the Zapatista uh, system of justice in their autonomous communities, etc. And women are encouraged to step up and participate. There are historical uh, and accumulated obstacles that many women themselves said, and we know this from reading their testimony in the Escuelita, the, uh, the textbooks of the Little Zapatista School, where they reflected the young women and young people in general in the community reflected on their experience. They said, yeah, when we were first asked, uh, you know, invited to join these structures and take on these roles, uh, we said, yeah, but who's going to watch the animals and who's going to watch the children and who's going to perform these traditional uh, gender roles? And uh, that is an obstacle. Or they would say, 
Um, well, uh, we uh, never had the opportunity to learn Spanish or to learn to read and write. And so how are we going to participate in a multi-ethnic uh, governing council if we haven't had that? And, you know, so it's a process of saying, you know, uh, learn by doing, join, uh, take this on, and the rest of the community also, the men included, the older people, everyone in the community had to take these roles on as a collective responsibility, not just let's send so-and-so to do it. The Zapatistas are modeling participatory democracy, not representative uh, forms of uh, governance. So there has been progress, and of course there's still um, much to be done. In To take an example of the, the Zapatista concept of justice, the, uh, Mariana Mora, the anthropologist, and many others have examined uh, the gendering of justice through the Zapatista structures, uh, which include sort of, um, you know, a gendered lens. If you have a punitive system of justice, uh, then a man who is ac accused of some transgression is thrown in jail, and then what happens to that man's family if he was, say, working and earning a wage? Um, it doesn't help anyone. It's punishing everyone. And the women said, no, we want a restorative system of justice. Let's have, you know, community work that is a, a benefit to everyone. The women demanded um, measures like a prohibition on alcohol in the communities. Alcohol has often been used to divide and, and undermine the social fabric of indigenous communities. And the women were in the forefront of making that demand. And even though there was resistance from the men, uh, it led to a significant decrease in domestic violence, as well as better use of uh, home uh, financial resources in the uh, in the family rather than having it wasted on, on alcohol. So those are a few examples of the many ways that the movement, again, as a work in progress, has opened uh, non-traditional roles for traditionally excluded or marginalized groups. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're getting highlights of what happened and the significance of the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against oblivion which took place in chiapas mexico from december 29th to january 2nd of 2024 we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back In the second part of our show today here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue our interview with Richard stoller Shulk, a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University involved with the School of Chiapas. He's speaking on the highlights and what happened and the significance and importance of the beginning of the war against oblivion, which took place in Chiapas, Mexico, 
from December 29th to January 2nd of 2024. And now back to the interview. You mentioned um, Commander Ramona. Um, in the past, we've talked about um, who is affectionately known as Mayachui. And I was wondering maybe talk about who she is, her work, because she was instrumental as well in uh, fighting for Indigenous women's um, uh, rights, um, you know, and fighting against, you know, male chauvinism and it's part of the reconstitution, if you will, of indigenous communities. And, um, and she has a long legacy of doing that kind of work, even going back to, you know, the March of the Color of the Earth in 2002. So sorry, maybe talk a little bit about her contributions as well, and where she fits into the, the narrative. Definitely. Marijui is the Nickname of a Nawa indigenous traditional healer woman from uh, the state of Jalisco, not from Chiapas, not um, uh, a formal member of the, the Zapatista communities or, or movement. Um, the Zapatistas in their outreach inspired the creation of a, a network of all these 60 plus indigenous groups all across Mexico called the National Indigenous Congress, CNI, where it's uh, Spanish initials, um, shortly after the Zapatista uprising. And that network has gradually become strengthened to the point where together uh, with the uh, with the Zapatistas, the CNI sponsored uh, in uh, a few years ago uh, local assemblies in the indigenous communities across Mexico, participatory assemblies to create a kind of constituent grouping uh, known as the uh, Indigenous Governing Council of Mexico, a kind of parallel government. And uh, jointly, the uh, National Indigenous Congress and the Zapatistas um, agreed to support an indigenous woman for a symbolic candidacy for the presidential election of 2018 in Mexico. It wasn't the first time that the Zapatistas had done something along these lines. Uh, the other campaign that they organized in 2005-2006 in the run-up to the 2006 presidential election uh, was a kind of uh, way of pointing out that uh, Mexican party politics were going nowhere and excluded too many voices and too many issues. Um, so they launched a campaign that was not about a candidacy at all, that was traveling around the country, linking up with groups in resistance, not just indigenous groups, but across the country, resisting injustice, oppression, um, uh, capitalist uh, depredations. Um, and so that other campaign really changed the agenda in many ways of Mexican politics. So again, in 2018, when the Zapatistas, this time teaming up with the indigenous coalition that had been constructed around the, the country, ran this symbolic candidacy, uh, it was a way of saying, Women uh, are not being um, heard, women's voices. Uh, a traditional healer like uh, Mari Chui, who had this uh, vision of uh, living harmoniously with uh, the earth and uh, uh, the relationship between the, the plants and, uh, and the body and, and uh, medicinal curing, a kind of healing. Um, so um, that voice was put in the, the forefront. Of course, it was also saying, look how useless the official party political system is. These voices are not being heard, and so we need to create parallel structures. Um, and the candidacy did that. Some people have talked about the Mari Chui effect. Of course, she didn't win uh, the, the presidency. In fact, um, the uh, official electoral system didn't even allow her name to appear on the ballot because they used 
technicalities of requiring a certain number of signatures that had to be registered on expensive types of cell phones and apps that didn't work in the remote indigenous communities, et cetera. It was, you know, the usual way of excluding people, uh, using the rules to exclude those who have always been ex excluded. But uh, nevertheless, there was this other outcome, the so-called Marichui effect of the organizational experience as Marichui traveled around the country and met with groups and heard their grievances and they began to establish links. Um, so one example of this kind of linkage is that indigenous people around Mexico have realized that the, the mega projects of death, uh, these massive uh, infrastructure and extractive industry projects um, are having a devastating effect in the community and there have been a number of growing uh, forms of organized resistance that um, really have been encouraged by things like, you know, Mari Choi and the other campaign, you know, touring the country, pulling together the common threads of these uh, grievances. Last year, there was a, a meeting um, of uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of representatives of 33 different indigenous peoples, communities, and, and uh, nations around Mexico called the South Resist, emphasizing the resistance, particularly in the south of Mexico where many indigenous people are concentrated, resistance against these uh, mega projects. And so that's an example of that. Talk about these mega projects um, in greater detail because it is part of the kind of the just transition, if you will, that is being conveyed in these communiques and in combating, you know, settler colonialism and combating um, capitalism. And certainly these projects, as you mentioned, like with the Mayan train, right, they just uh, inaugurated the first section of it, um, uh, the train line for probably for mostly American tourists, if I recall from our prior uh, interviews. But uh, talk a little bit more about that and how this is uh, uh, addressed um, during the gathering, um, uh, December 29th through January 2nd. Sure. The official line of the Mexican government and the uh, big capitalist enterprises that are promoting these mega projects is that uh, they're interested in bringing progress and development. Um, we've heard that before um, since colonial times. Uh, the rationale for displacing, suppressing, stealing the identity and the resources of indigenous communities. Um, so the indigenous communities have, um, in, in some cases, they're divided, but many have uh, been uh, in uh, resistance and saying, no, we don't want someone else to tell us uh, what we need to be developed and to, um, uh, to be civilized. Uh, this is an old trope uh, of the colonial narrative. Um, to, to look at the big picture, uh, there is um, a lot of violence organized often directly or indirectly by the state against any form of resistance to the stealing of um, uh, commodified resources and the displacement of the indigenous people who have been the custodians of those lands and resources. So, uh, for instance, on a global scale, indigenous people represent about 6% of the world's population, um, but they are one-third of all those who have been killed uh, in environmental conflicts around the world. Um, and in the latest report of a, a group called Global Witness, uh, they documented that three-quarters of the uh, attacks 
on uh, land and water and, and territory defenders uh, occurred in Latin America. Mexico tops the list, uh, and 40% of the environmental defenders killed in Mexico have been indigenous people. Uh, so this is a, a little bit of the, the big picture. There are three big mega projects in Mexico underway now, many others, but uh, just to mention briefly three of them, and then I'll focus on one of them, uh, the so-called Maya Train Project to uh, supposedly promote tourist development and connect the Mayan um, uh, ruins and sites in the Yucatan Peninsula all the way down to uh, the site of, of Palenque in the state of Chiapas. Uh, the second is the Trans-Isthmian Corridor, uh, connecting uh, Chiapas to uh, the state of Oaxaca to the west. Again, these are uh, heavily indigenous areas, uh, and that Trans-Isthmian Corridor will be massive, high-speed rail, deep-water ports, um, energy generation projects, etc. Um, and the last is in the uh, more west-central part of the, the country, the um, Monelos Integral Project, uh, which again is, you know, uh, gas lines and, you know, uh, major infrastructure and energy generation. But to focus on the Maya train, which you mentioned, first of all, um, most, uh, many Maya people resisted and certainly do not consider it to be a Maya train. So it's an appropriation um, of their name and identity. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with retired professor Richard Stoller Shulk, involved with the School of Chiapas. He's speaking on the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the war against a Bolivian, which took place earlier this year in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. The um, Mexican government, which is required under international law, under Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization, indigenous people have to give their consent, and it has to be free, prior, and informed consent before any project of this sort um, can be imposed in their historic territories. Um, so the government went through uh, a series of sham consultations. Um, uh, supposedly claiming that they had the consent of the communities, but there was ridiculously low turnout. Uh, the documents and materials were not translated into indigenous languages. It was false information given to the communities about the impact. Uh, communities were deliberately divided and leaders bought off, etc. So sham consultations. Uh, the Maya Train Project, which is a, a huge project in terms of territory and costs, etc., uh, would have a devastating cultural effect bringing in tourists to these uh, Mayan communities um, so that they can uh, consume at a, uh, a much different level and in a much different way from the local communities, bulldozing land, territory communities, evicting and displacing anyone whose lands and, and housing and settlements live in that area, destroying the history and the artifacts of the communities going back to ancient Mayan times that are in the route of the train, uh, uh, cutting down vast swaths of, of forest, evicting communities, uh, the environmental impact. Uh, this region that we're talking about um, uh, in the, the Yucatan and, and down to the Lacandon jungle is the second largest rainforest in Latin America after the Amazon. It's a region of tremendous biodiversity. This would have a devastating impact on the species um, of animals and plants and spores, et cetera, in that region. Um, and uh, it would have a terrible impact on the drinking water, the water table, the underground aquifers in the region. So a disaster, and there's been major resistance by indigenous people. 
Marcus? Yes, Richard, I was the same before about Zapatista territories where the people don't have to keep, don't have to wonder and or keep their eyes on the daughters and sons and they feel calm. You talked about many things of political, but what about now the important thing when you talked about the commons and you talked about the non-property, the most important thing is how we raise our families and the cultural aspect of that. And that lays the groundwork of the political. Where in North America, I, it seems to me that we have to pay attention to that, and we're not. Talk about that, the important role of the culture and the, the families and the young leadership. That's a good point. The social dynamics that the Zapatistas are striving to uh, create anew in these communities are very different from what we find in areas that have been impacted by capitalist development projects and by co-optation uh, of the, the government. Um, so, uh, for example, in many indigenous communities uh, in Chiapas, uh, where the government um, was trying to displace and dislodge people from their uh, lands, indigenous people, the government would come in and offer money, um, give, uh, give handouts of food and other supplies, and one impact of that, in addition to the divisions that that created in the communities, um, is that many indigenous people in those bought-off regions would then stop planting their lands, stop figuring out ways in the community that they would do their traditional labor-sharing arrangements and community sharing uh, and having meetings and, and assemblies to decide how the land and how the resources are going to be used. So that social fabric is... Uh, really deliberately torn apart by these government efforts at co-optation and division, which is why the Zapatistas say that they are in resistance, meaning that they refuse any government help, any government so-called aid, or any government projects, but rather they're aiming for the self-sufficiency that builds this kind of internal community. Um, the, so the, the banning of alcohol was another example of a way to try to reinforce um, community, the creation of collective projects on the recovered lands in the Zapatista community, collective production projects, uh, brings people together to discuss what are the needs of the community. Do we need a new school building? How are we all going to pitch in on the construction? And how are we all going to pitch in on a collective plot of land to grow enough corn to sell some of it to raise the resources needed to build the schoolhouse, etc.? So all those things are the kind of little by little grassroots building up of the threads of community or what some uh, call communality um, that are the, the essence of the autonomous projects in the Zapatista communities. very different from the top-down, bring in the corporations, bring in the bulldozers and lay the rail for a train project, and then maybe somebody will get a job temporarily on one of the construction projects until it's over, and then they're gone and they're displaced. Well, let me uh, let me ask the question then. Um, in terms of um, you know the, the mega projects, um, uh, what's been uh, the response uh, by uh, Mayan and other indigenous peoples? Well, the response has been somewhat mixed because the government has tried very hard to divide and buy off right. indigenous people, and that's unfortunately had some um, impact. So uh, there are some who um, see the dangling of resources or of a position of political authority that the government might be offering a co-opted uh, leader of a community. So 
um, division has been one of the unfortunate um, consequences of this government strategy. Uh, but more and more, uh, there is growing uh, unification and organization uh, and consciousness that has led to um, this uh, resistance. Uh, so, for example, this uh, caravan that I mentioned, the South Resist, that was done throughout the um, the southern states of, of Mexico across many of the indigenous territories that are in, uh, affected by the mega projects um, in April, May of last year, um, they gathered together 900 people on the caravan uh, from 33 different indigenous nations of, of Mexico and 30 uh, countries. And at the end, there was a gathering in Chiapas uh, where um, the the group issued a statement that said, to quote briefly from the statement, the caravan allowed us to meet the jungle that resists. Where the trees are cut down, life springs up again. We listened to the birds and their messages. We drank the crystalline water from the wells and we breathed the clean air of rurality. We find peoples and communities that organize, resist, and do not allow dispossession or even the entry of companies into their territories. They also take measures to recover ways of life that build hopeful autonomies for humanity. Neither with the National Guard, nor with the Navy, nor with the Army, they will not stop us. While you destroy, we build. Uh, so, uh, in short, the response is a response of, of affirmation of life uh, against uh, these projects of death. Uh, one of the terms that you hear among many indigenous communities throughout Latin America and in various forms, for instance, in the Andean communities, people talk about Buen Vivir or Suma Kausai in uh, one of the Andean languages, um, the harmonious, uh, righteous way of living that the indigenous people have defined for themselves. In the uh, Tzotzil and Tzotzil communities in, in Chiapas, uh, they use the term Lekil Kuslihal, which means something similar, um, kind of uh, the way of living uh, in the community um, in a sustainable, harmonious way. So that's kind of the response of counterposing this positive vision of community-based life to the negative vision of displacement, destruction, and environmental devastation. Final question, Marcus? Yes, Richard, the Zapatismo embarks towards the future of humanity. Talk about that. All this discussion we had, rich discussion, economics, sociological, political, but now about the future of humanity. Please talk about that for us. Wow, that's a big question um, and an important one. Uh, I think that uh, humanity can't exist if the planet is destroyed and we are facing uh, an environmental crisis of uh, unprecedented and potentially irreversible uh, proportions. Um, so this affirmation of life is not just for the people directly in the path of a given train line or, or project. It's really uh, collectively um, something that is, uh, you know, of central importance, of vital importance for uh, all of humanity in uh, resisting the greed that is our undoing as humanity. Uh, so uh, corporate structures and top-down state structures um, are not going to uh, allow humanity to sustain itself. And we see these um, results in the unsustainability, environmental and, and otherwise, everywhere. Um, and uh, an offshoot of that is that um, uh, as the greedy are challenged on this um, 
inhumane model, uh, they're using more and more violence. And so we're seeing uh, not just the structural violence of displacement and discrimination and, um, and uh, impoverishment of communities, but also uh, the direct physical violence we see in Mexico, for instance, the criminal organizations that are expanding in recent years. In, in Chiapas, there's been a sharp increase of violence. Of, um, and uh, the, these, uh, not just the drug cartels, but they are uh, part of larger frameworks of transnational criminal organizations now in collusion uh, in the, uh, southern Chiapas with the Guatemalan military, with the Mexican military, the offshoots of that, milit militias and paramilitary forces protecting private business interests. Um, so it's really, you know, humanity against these forces of um, uh, greed and uh, and violence that are uh, not sustainable and certainly not just. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Richard Stuller Schulk. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Hmm.